Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This week on the Quarterdeck, with our reading of our book, with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no greater friend, no worst enemy, we take a look at the operation planning and update to the Eastern and Nazaria bridges and what the plan for the division was going to be to get the division across these areas of their operational space. In our hero highlight this week, we take a look at the story of Corporal John Peter Farty of the United States Marine Corps, who was born in Chicago, Illinois on 15 August of 1922. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's, it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, 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 get in line right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarterdeck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Quarterdeck. This week on the 21st marked 20 years that the United States Armed Forces headed into Iraq. Can you guys believe it? It's been 20 years since that happened. It seems like just yesterday that we were sitting there on our little fob, our little camp, Camp Matilda, waiting for the orders for the Marines to prepare to get ready to cross the border from Kuwait and actually head into Iraq. One of the main reasons that it really sticks in my mind is because, you know, all the, the Marines, the camaraderie that we shared, that we were prepared to lay our life down for them. Not necessarily, you know, we cared about our own well-being because, yeah, of course we did. But they were very, very important to us. And that's one of the things that I had told all the Marines that I had under my charge is that we were going to make sure that we stuck together and that we all made it back home. And that we are going to make sure that we got through this the best that we could. And we're going to make sure that we remembered our training and everything that we had learned throughout that time that we were preparing to actually head into combat. Because ultimately, that's the goal. That was the goal of every Marine. Now, during the time when I came into the Marine Corps in 1995, it was during peacetime. Or peacetime Marines, as you know, they called it, garrison. A garrison Marine, somebody that hasn't gone into combat or not going into combat. But our sole purpose was to actually prepare to go train and make sure that we were prepared in the event that something did occur that required us to actually head into harm's way and defend our country. And that was the case back then, that we had to deploy and get this thing done and accomplish the mission that we needed to do. Now, this week, they posted a lot of different types of stories and things that they had everywhere. And I want to share with you guys a story that I watched today, and I want to thank CBS Evening News for the news broadcast and the video that they have on YouTube and for allowing us to be able to share it here with you guys today. Well, 20 years ago tonight, President George W. Bush used a late-night Oval Office address to inform Americans that the invasion of Iraq had begun. On my orders, Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war.
And today, polls show that most Americans do not believe the U.S. made the right decision to invade. CBS's Charlie Daggett is in Baghdad tonight. Shock and awe. The U.S. military's term and intent for the aerial bombardment that began the war. But the takedown of Saddam Hussein's regime triggered a savage insurgency and a brutal sectarian conflict. A tragedy that cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and nearly 4,500 U.S. service members. This is Baghdad today. Gone are most of the cement blast walls and barbed wire. Amid the capital's bustling marketplaces and cafes, something else has returned a sense of optimism. But threats to Iraq's security remain, not least from its powerful neighbor, Iran, which continues to increase its influence, with political parties and powerful paramilitary groups tied to Tehran. All across Baghdad, you'll find billboards and banners like this, honoring the memory of Qasem Soleimani, the top Iranian general accused of killing hundreds of American soldiers during the war and considered such a threat. He was killed in a U.S. airstrike here in the city in 2020. I'm really focused. We put the question to U.S. Ambassador Alina Romanowski, who's visiting Washington, D.C. But Iran has proven in the past to make this a very difficult place to operate in. The Iranians have made it a difficult place to operate and have contributed uh, to some of the insecurity, but I do think that um, this is a sovereign decision that the Iraqis uh, need to sort out with their, with their neighbor. There is a lot to sort out. Iraq is recovering from decades of war and sanctions, and widespread corruption continues to plague the economy despite booming oil revenues. But Ambassador Romanowski believes Iraqi leadership has turned a corner. I think you have a government that is committed to, you know, improving the lives and the services for Iraqi people. Iraqis tell us what they want most is for this fragile peace to remain and hope the prosperity will come. Charlie Daggett joins us now from Baghdad. And Charlie, you were there from the beginning of this war. What is it like to be back there in Baghdad now? Well, Baghdad is a world away from what it was even just a few years ago. I can't remember a time we've been able to walk around without wearing flak jackets. On that note, we pay tribute tonight to our CBS colleagues and my friends, cameraman Paul Douglas and soundman James Brolin, killed in 2006 when a car bomb exploded not far from here. They felt very strongly about covering this story, and they lost their lives doing it. Returning here this week is a reminder of that. Jerika. Charlie Daggett in Baghdad for us tonight. Thank you. As we can see, there's a lot of different history and things that everybody remembers from the actual military service members that were there on the ground to the news broadcasters that were embedded with the individual units that were covering this whole entire story. They too put their lives on the line. They put their lives on the line because they were basically on their own. They were non-combatants. They had no weapons. They didn't have anything to ensure that they took care of themselves or protected themselves. They basically relied on the protection of the military services that they were assigned to to ensure that they were as safe as possible. Now, those of you guys that have been following my reading of my book that I have here in the next segment of the podcast, you guys know how the division actually prepared and is getting ready to actually head into Iraq, and it covers the whole entire history 
of the first Marine division back in 2003 and the preparations of the division and all the different units that they had on there. I seen so many stories from different news broadcasts talking about 20 years, 20 years since Iraq happened and the repercussions of the United States actually going in there. And of course, everybody's going to have their opinions, you know, and I have my own opinion because, you know, I was there on the ground. I lived through the actual invasion of going into Iraq and being able to see the happiness, the joy of the people that were there because the United States was there to actually remove the regime of Saddam Hussein and to allow him to have a better future. You know, that was the goal that for us to have there to make sure that we went there. Now, regardless of whatever the opinion was or what was going on, you know, as a military service member, you know, you make an oath to protect all enemies, foreign and domestic. And regardless, the president of the United States gave an order, gave an order to ensure that we were able to execute it. And that is what you do. There is no, oh, no, I'm not doing that because of this, because of that. And there's something that needed to be done, something that needed to be done to ensure that the safety of the United States continued to happen because terrorists were getting everywhere. They were everywhere attacking, bombing, car bombs everywhere throughout the world. But when they decided to attack the United States of America, it was a whole different story because it was so much closer to everybody that, you know, was here in the United States, not only for us as military service members, but you can imagine all the people down there in New York when everything happened. When everything happened down there in New York, what they went through and all that stuff, because they're not used to being in any kind of combat environment, and that's exactly what it was. It was ground zero. Ground zero of where these attacks happened and where the planes hit the towers and caused them to collapse, and now all these individuals were going through that, even though they really had no idea what it was going to be like. You know, so many service members during that time, you know, especially in the Marine Corps. In the Marine Corps, we have so many young service members. The youngest average of military service members that in all the military services that there is. Because the Marines, you know, are there. And, you know, the model, first to fight. First to fight to get in there and handle business and pull out. That's the model of the Marine Corps. That's why it's stated that, you know, it's the few, the proud. Because not everybody can become a United States Marine. And that's, you know, a whole different topic for other different episodes that we talk about. But, you know, I don't like getting into politics. You guys know that. And I don't want to get into that. But I do want to take the opportunity to actually remember and think back 20 years of what occurred during that time frame. Because, you know, me, as well as many of you that are listening to the podcast, were there. You were there on the ground. Or you might have known somebody that was there. But what I can guarantee is that everybody during that time when the towers were hit on September 11th of 2001 it seems like so long ago that that occurred but we got to remember everything that occurred that day and where everybody was because I guarantee you during that time frame everybody can remember exactly where they were and what they were doing when that event took place and to me that's something that you know prepared not only me, but the Marines, the whole entire 1st Marine Division, to get ready to prepare for combat in the event that the President of the United States set the order and told us that we needed to prepare to actually head over there to defend our great nation, which is what the armed forces did. 
Now, again, you know, there's so many people out there that have their own opinions of yes or no, they shouldn't have been there or this and that was fake and so forth and everything else. Hey, to everyone their own, that's their opinion. But for us as military service members, we did our job. We headed in there, executed the mission that we had to do, and then we made it back home. But to all those individuals throughout those 20 years that we had, all those years and years of fighting, all the service members, the families of those that did not make it back, I want to send out a big thank you for their service and know that their life was not wasted in vain, regardless of some of the things that have occurred in the last past couple of years of everybody being pulled out of those countries out there in the Middle East. With that being said, let's take a quick minute and remember those individuals that we had down there in Iraq with a moment of silence and the playing of taps. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Signs Photography. Miguel Signs is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Signs will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Signs Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Signs will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Signs Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Signs Photography. Visit Miguel Signs Photography online at miguelsignsphotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Last week in our book of the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, we talked about how the update of the operational plan was coming into place and how the division talked about running the scene now that they were able to utilize Highway 1 to their advantage to ensure that the division successfully continue to move from Kuwait all the way into Baghdad to make sure that they're going to have every opportunity to be able to engage the enemy as best as they possibly could and get there as soon as possible. This week, we take a look at a little bit more of the actual planning, but we talk about the Eastern and Nazaria bridges. 
And what was that actually going to mean to the division? How are they going to utilize these tactics to ensure that they made it across safely? Using both the Highway 1 and Highway 7 corridors north of the Euphrates was possible. But the choke point at the single Highway 1 bridge site west of Anazaria would seriously impede the division's tempo. The forces bunched on the approaches to the hourglass choke point would also be tempting target for the enemy's employment of chemical weapons. On the north side of the Euphrates, natural factors considered against any cross-corridor movement. There were no connecting routes between Highway 1 and Highway 7 until the division had maneuvered all the way to Ad Diwania, 150 kilometers to the north. There, Highway 17 connected the two major avenues of approach, including a critical bridge over the Saddam Canal, which flowed between the two highways. Additionally, there would be additional friction and congestion generated if the division conducted a major forward passage of lines, or the FPOL, near the An Nazaria area, a cost to speed that the division was not willing to pay. To rely excessively on the Highway 1 bridge for the entire division maneuver would be a gamble. An exhaustive search had found no suitable routes over the Euphrates to the east of Anazaria. The division planners revisited the earlier work that had been done on the bridges of the Anazaria itself and found that the intermost bridges in the city offered a direct avenue of approach across the Euphrates River and Saddam Canal and directly onto the Highway 7 corridor. Geographically, this was an obvious choice, and General Conway agreed. If the division could secure these bridges intact, and the urban environment permitted, this was a preferred route for the attack forces using Highway 7. As the division understood the intent of the U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry Division at the time, the Army would clear the Anazaria urban area south of the Euphrates in their defeat this occurred. The enemy in Anazaria would likely be subdued enough to allow the division's combat forces to pass over the eastern bridges in the city. The division G6 worked with the MEF G6 to ensure that the frequency nets and call signs of the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division were pre-planned in order to conduct detailed coordination on the ground. A decision point in the decision criteria were inserted into the division's plan to allow for rapid exploitation of the eastern bridges if circumstances allowed. If the securing of the city was delayed, the decision could be made based on the level of risk. Task Force Tara, a MEB-sized force with a Ford headquarters staff under General Richard Natonsky, was given the mission of securing the crossing of the Anazaria and stabilizing the urban area. The division would carefully coordinate its passage through Anazaria with this force. And to my surprise, when I remember Anazaria, when I remember Iraq in general, you know, to me, I'm considering Iraq to be nothing but desert, sand dunes, just like we saw in the movies of the Middle East. This wasn't the case. 
There was a lot of trees. It was green. Could you believe it? It was green. And they had, had a lot to do because of the, the rivers. The Euphrates River allowed all that vegetation to grow. But now the division did come up with that scenario that they weren't going to be able to use that choke point off Highway 1 to connect to Highway 7. And when they were talking about actually going through these small cities to make that connection onto Highway 7, man, this, you know, was a challenge for the division. Because now we had to find a way to cross these rivers. The Euphrates and the Tigris. And I can remember, oh my goodness. I can't even tell you how many times it seemed that we crossed these rivers in different areas heading into Baghdad. It just seemed like forever that it took us to actually get there. But one of the things that I can clearly remember is that when we were getting ready to cross this river, we used a little bit of the bridges that were already there in place. But I can remember that they actually used part of the army brigade that was there. And then use one of those vehicles that they had the temporary bridge vehicles and they were able to stretch this vehicle all the way across the euphrates river to allow the division to actually drive across on this temporary bridge and let me tell you this was something that man it made my asshole pucker up reason being but it's because remember i'm artillery we shoot cannons and here we are taking these cannons that weighs 16,000 pounds, a 16,000 pound weapon system going across these small little bridges with a seven ton pulling these bridges, ammo in the back of the truck, Marines with ammo combat load for them to be able to have. I don't have to tell you guys, those seven tons are pretty damn heavy and they're heavy along with that 16,000 pound gun going across. Now, when we crossed these things, it was only one vehicle at a time. You guys can imagine why. As soon as the vehicle hit that bridge, imagine being on a damn swing, swaying left to right, back and forth, and bouncing up and down slowly as you're going across this bridge. To me, this was something that I can only imagine in the movies. It wasn't something that I really pictured myself ever really having to go through up until that time. I mean, the only other thing or small area that I can remember going across was when we were getting ready to go on one of our Westpacks in 1996 that I had to back up this howitzer with a truck onto a small little ramp to get it onto the ship so it can be embarked on there. Now, you heard me correctly. I had to back it up down there at the Naval Shipyard in San Diego, California. And because I was able to actually do it, then it was my responsibility to back up all six of the howitzers that we had because none of the other drivers were able to actually get it put into place. Now, here in Iraq, I was not the driver. I was a section chief, so I was the one in charge of the gun. However, did we take turns driving? Yes, we did. And it just seemed like we were driving forever. All of us were almost zombies that we were trying to stay awake because... We had to stay alert because we were in the back of the trucks to ensure that we had proper security as we continued to move the convoy up Highway 1, making our way down there to connect with that Highway 7 corridor. And it was, I won't say it was very difficult, but it was just a lack of sleep was not making us delirious because, I mean, we were pumped up on adrenaline. I mean, you can imagine being pumped up on adrenaline 
because this is something that we have never done before that we were actually going through the process of catching POWs. You know, a lot of the soldiers that were down there fighting for the Iraqi army, they simply took their weapons, threw them and ran. So we were finding AK 47s all over the place, just thrown on the ground. And we had to make sure that we collected those back up because we didn't want other people to actually get a hold of these and use them against us. So it was an interesting time, especially getting ready to go through all these rivers and getting, uh, to Baghdad faster than we initially planned to go into. Next week, we're going to continue with this planning update. The operation is starting to get there and get into place exactly how the division is planning to make this happen. But we're going to talk about specifically about the envelopment of Baghdad and the outer cordon that the division was going to be in charge of once they actually got into place and we finally made it all the way into Baghdad. Hero Highlight. This week in our Hero Highlights, we take a look at the story of John Peter Farty, who was born in Chicago, Illinois, on 15 August 1922. John Peter Farty was born in Chicago, Illinois, on 15 August 1922. Educated in the schools of Chicago, he graduated from high school there in 1940. He took a course in typing at the Fox Secretarial College the same year and entered the Illinois Institute of Technology the following year. He majored in mechanical engineering, but left after the first year. He had been doing time study work previously, so he went to work with the Colonel Forge Company as a time study man and draftsman. Inducted into the Marine Corps on 8 May of 1943, he went through recruit training at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California, upon completion of which he was assigned to the Japanese Language School at his own request. He was promoted to private first class in July, about two weeks before the start of school. After one month's attendance at the language school at Camp Elliott, San Diego, private first class Farty was transferred to the infantry battalion where he was trained as an automatic rifleman. Private first class Farty joined the 29th replacement battalion shortly before the unit left the United States on 28 October. He journeyed to Numa, New Caledonia, and was reassigned to the 27th Replacement Battalion, which was leaving to join the 1st Marine Division. Attached to Company C, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, upon his arrival at Gunnow Island, D. Intracondus Island, early in December, Private 1st Class Farty left with that unit about a week later for Nassing, Alatu, New Guinea. The stay there was a short one also for the 1st Marines left Finashvan on Christmas Day of 1943. For their 26th December landing on enemy-held Cape Gloucester, New Britain, with two months of the time he left his home shores. The former draftsman was involved in a battle for an enemy air dome on an island rarely heard of before. Following the Cape Gloucester operation and the return of the 1st Marine Division to the Russell Islands for over three months training. The division left for Peleliu. After practice landings at Guadalcanal, the divisions landed on the coral-studded shadeless Peleliu. Private First Class Farty participated in the capture of the airport and the attack on the coral hills overlooking it before returning to the Russell Islands with his regiment in early October. Promoted to Corporal on 21 December 1944, the Blue-Eyed 
blonde veteran of two campaigns became a squad leader as the reorganized division started training for the next operation. The training ashore ended in February and the Marines embarked aboard the ships that took them for the practice landing at Maniquí, Russell Islands, Guadalcanal, and the Ulithi Atoll in the Caroline Islands. The landing on Okinawa occurred on Easter Sunday, 1 April 1945, and the division sweep across the island up to the northern tip was accomplished with comparative ease. Later, Marines were moved south to help hard-pressed Army troops. It was on 6 May when Company C was advancing against a strongly fortified, fanatically defended Japanese position that Corporal Fardy's squad was suddenly brought under heavy small arms fire. Corporal Fardy temporarily deployed his men along a convenient drainage ditch. Shortly afterwards, an enemy hand grenade landed in the ditch, falling among the pinned down Marines. Instantly, the 21-year-old corporal flung himself upon the grenade and absorbed the exploding charge with his own body. Taken to a field hospital, Corporal Fardy died the next day. The Medal of Honor was presented to Corporal Fardy's parents at ceremonies conducted by the Marine Corps League in Chicago, 15 September, 1946. Retirement services for Corporal Fardy with military honors by the Chicago Detachment of the Marine Corps League were held on 7 April, 1949 at Holy Sepulchre Cemetery. The Quarterdeck. This week on the Quarterdeck, man, we covered a whole bunch of stuff. But the most important part is that we're starting to understand a little bit more on how the 1st Marine Division is conducting their updates to its battle plan to ensure the division's success and what's going to be easier to actually allow them to be able to accomplish that mission that they're trying to do. And it's starting to get uh, so much more interesting because it's able to allow me and all of you listening that participated in the initial invasion into Iraq and the things that we saw, what we heard, all those things that were going on. Because for me, the smells, the sounds are still very, very distinct and are easily triggered in my memories by some of the things that I continue to see today. In our hero highlight, we took a look at the story of Corporal John Peter Fardy and how he sacrificed his life in order to save those Marines that were around him. Next week in our hero highlight, we will be taking a look at Captain Richard Eugene Fleming. And as always, all of our facts are checked by the Marine Corps University to allow us to ensure that we have the correct information about our heroes and the things that they did and we're able to look at their citation as it is located there on our website. Our facts regarding our book and our history of the 1st Marine Division is being simply followed by our reading of our book. And lastly, I want to take the opportunity to thank everybody that continues to download our podcast every single week. All my loyal listeners that have downloaded it every week, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And all of you that may be new, that maybe have heard of our podcast from a friend, from a colleague, 
Appreciate all of you taking the time throughout the week to joining us and enjoying our reading of our book and learning about the history of some of our war heroes that we have from back in the past. So until next week, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get out the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.